0: Well, scandal. Scandal is what we're going to talk about this morning here. And scandal, I think, is one of those interesting words in the English language. It's one of the few words in the English language that sounds a little bit like what it actually is. In that, I think when you say scandal, that that cutting sound of that word sounds a little bit sharp and, and bad and, you know, ooh, what is this, you know? And so I think it's a, kind of a great word because it kind of describes what it is. Let me work on a definition with you, though. Uh, I, I pulled two definitions from Webster's this week as I was looking at this word. First definition was this. A scandal is an occurrence in which people are shocked and upset because of behavior that is morally or legally wrong. The second shorter definition was this, something that is shocking, upsetting, or unacceptable. Well, I accidentally created a bit of a scandal the other day uh, I want to tell you about. I, uh, it was a few months ago, and i just got a new phone. And I uh, had my phone, and I was on the couch with my wife sitting next to me, OK? So we're sitting there on the couch, we both have new phones, we're playing on our phones, the kids are asleep, it was quiet in our house, I think the TV was probably on too. Uh, Very romantic, right? We're both on our phones beside each other. So we're here having this phone moment beside each other and I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if I texted Liz? She's right beside me, right? So Liz is right beside me and I pull out, I've got my phone there and I I text her and I say, hey Hardy, send. Then I look down and realize that I didn't send it to Liz. And I realized that I actually send it, sent it to one of my writing buddies who's about 6'5 and 220 pounds at least, and he's a man's man. And uh, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, what did I do? What did I do? And I, and I try to get back, and I'm like, before I can even text and apologize, he texts me back, and he's like, say what? And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I was trying to text my wife. She's sitting next to me. I thought it would be funny. You know, Anyway. I created a scandal in a moment accidentally. I don't know if any of you have stories like that, but texting can be funny a little bit like that, right? Well, a scandal is something that I think our culture and our world in general seems to have this morbid obsession with. You don't have to go very far to see that. I mean, look at our TV shows, look at our movies, look at the things that's been presented in the media. There's a TV show called Scandal, right? You're in the checkout line in HUB, and you've got these magazines, and all the headlines are scandals, right? Who's marrying who? Who's dumping who? Who hasn't lost their baby weight? You know, all these, all these things like that. You are scandalous. My favourite are the ones that you know are the really out there magazines. The ones that say, you know, President Obama seen talking with aliens, or you know, man, man gives wife. I mean, man gives birth to twin girls, or something like you know, those extreme examples. But the truth is, our world has this obsession with scandal, and it may come as some sort of surprise to you this morning to think of it this way, but the Bible is actually a book that is full of stories of scandal. As you go through and look at the pages of the Bible, it's story after story, it's account after account of scandal. You start out in Genesis, and you've got these two brothers, one of them murders the other and runs away. That's a scandal, right? And then you move on to Noah, Noah's you know, rescues, rescues his family from the ark, but the ne- next story that we hear, they find his sons find him drunk and naked in his tent. You move on through the book and, of Genesis and get to the patriarchs. You got Abraham who sleeps with his wife's servant so that he can fulfill God's promise to conceive a son. That's a scandal, right? And you you continue on. You've got twins fighting over their birthright with their father. You move on to the period of the exodus. You've got Moses. He's a murderer who's leading God's people. Then Joshua sends off some spies to go spy out the promised land, and they stay with a prostitute. And the prostitute ends up becoming a part of the, the people of Israel, You move on into the book of Judges. Judges is full of scandal. You go through the book of Judges and it's crazy. One of the main characters in there is Samson. Samson's this guy who can literally take on a thousand guys by himself and kill them all. But he can't control himself around women. You move on to the kings. They're no better either. The kings, you know, even the best of kings, you got King David, is this guy who has an affair with a guy, a soldier in his army's wife, gets her pregnant, and then has the guy killed and tries to cover it up. And you move on to the prophets, and they're the same deal as well. You've got this guy, Isaiah, or Isaiah, as you say here. And he, uh, sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, He's this guy who's asked by God, and he, he goes through with it, to walk around naked and barefoot for over a couple of years. Not a couple of days, a couple of years. Now, so when we look at the Bible, we need to realize and understand those are just the tame stories, right, in the Bible. There's scandal throughout the stories of the Bible, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to us, because I believe that the greatest story that the Bible points us to, the gospel, the good news... Is a scandalous story as well. It's a story that tells us that there is a God who created us, humanity, and even though we're he's huge and we're small, he decided to send his son to fix this rebellious people by making us right with him. He sends his son to be born of a virgin into a, a family of no real consequence. And then he grows up, lives a sinless life, and then dies for everybody and is raised again. That sounds like a story of scandal to me. Well, today we're going to look at a, a story in the life of that guy, Jesus, God's son. And we're going to look at, it, at, at this story. And we shouldn't be surprised at all that when we look at this story, that it's when we're looking at him, it's a story of scandal. And so we've been journeying through and asking the question as a church, what does it mean to live like Jesus? This year, that's kind of been our goal, to talk about living like Jesus. Now, like Nick said last week, that should always be our goal, but that's our focus this year. And to do that for the next few months, or the next few weeks at least, we're going to go through the book of Mark together. And I'm excited that we're doing this, because I don't think there's a better place to, to figure out how to live like Jesus than looking to one of the Gospels, which is the accounts of how Jesus lived. And we're looking specifically Mark. And so we're going through the book of Mark together, and we're about to jump to the text, and so I encourage you to pull out your Bibles. If you have a Bible here with you this morning, that's great. Find that. If you don't, there should be one under the seat near you. So grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2 with me. Now, I just want to give you a little plug here. On the back of your listening guide that you should have got when you came in, there's actually a reading plan, and we're reading through the book of Mark together, and I'd encourage you to just take this home, slip it into your Bible or into your bag, and into your pocket and read through but mark with us it's just a small chunk every day that we're asking you to read with us and i would encourage you to do that because what's going to happen if you do that is you're going to read along and then where you're up to with your reading will be right where we're preaching about that sunday which is kind of cool right so i would encourage you to take a part of that it's just a great way to start reading the bible if you're not already doing that daily it's a really good habit To be a part of. So, Mark chapter 2 is where you're turning to this morning, and let me give you a little bit of background on what's happening here in this story as I turn there myself. So, Jesus has come on the scene, he's been baptized by John the Baptist, that's his cousin, and he is, uh, he's gone out into the wilderness and he's been tempted, and now he's come back and he started calling some disciples to himself. He's asking these guys to come and follow him. And as he's doing that, he's also doing some, some miracles. He's like casting out demons, and he's healing some people of their sickness and di- diseases. And we come across into the middle part of chapter 2 here this morning, and we come across this character named Levi or Matthew. He can go by either name, same guy, who's a tax collector. And Jesus is, is walking up, and they come up to this tax collection point. And really, if you want a modern-day translation, it's really like a toll booth that you, he's coming across in this road, and, and Matthew's there, Levi's there, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, come follow me. And it's crazy, the guy actually does. He's like, okay, I'll leave my job and everything, and I'm going to come follow Jesus. So that's what's happening just previous to where we're going to read today. And it's interesting, because Matthew, from what we can gather this Matthew, Levi guy, he, he gets his friends together and says, hey, I'm going to become one of Jesus' disciples. You need to come and meet this Jesus guy. He's changing my life. You need to come and meet him and interact with him. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15 today. So I would encourage you to read with me as we jump into verse 15 of chapter 2 of the book of Mark. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests with Jesus and His disciples, because there were many who were following Him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked His disciples, Why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, He told them, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we look at this story this morning and there's kind of this interesting interaction between the religious people and Jesus' disciples and the not so religious people. And I think for us to understand really the tension that's been raised here and the uh, intensity of this story, we need to examine closely the four groups of people that are here in, the, in present in this story. So what I want to do is take a few moments here to talk about these four groups and kind of try and get to understand them a little bit so that we can understand the situation and what's going on. These four different groups, we're going to go through and articulate some things about them, but I want you to realize that each of them are probably similar to the way that we've lived or acted or behaved at different points in our lives. So don't just write them off. Understand that at different points in our lives, there's probably been or will be moments where we have the same actions or feelings or emotions like them. I'm also going to try and give you some modern-day equivalents of these different people, okay? So the first group I want to talk about this morning is the tax collectors. We're going to start with the worst of the worst here this morning, the tax collectors. Because, you know, in our culture, in our world, you know, if you work for the IRS, it's probably not really a popular thing. You don't walk into a party and people will say, hey, what do you do? And you say, I'm a tax... You know, I work for the IRS. People aren't like, oh, that's awesome. Like, but, but in their world and culture you're going to see that that was actually really, really a bad thing. Let me explain that a little bit. Tax collectors were considered traitors and extortionists. And I know that a lot of you have probably grown up in church circles, or at least some of you have been around church long enough to know that when I say that, a tax collector was seen as somebody who worked for the Romans, and what they would do is they'd come along to you and they'd say, okay, you owe $1,200 in taxes, and what they'd do is they'd take a thousand dollars that was owed to Rome, and then they'd take that extra two hundred dollars and put it in their pocket. Well, that's true. That is what a tax collector did do. But that's only part of the story, because really, there's a lot more to the backstory of why they were so hated. And I want to explain that really quickly to you guys this morning. So, at the time of Jesus, the time that we, when all this was happening, in history, we understand that the world was dominated by this empire called the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was this vast and brutal empire that stretched from England all the way to India, okay? So a little history lesson here. They're, they're this ginormous empire that has world power at the time, greater than any world power that had been known to that time. And the way that they acquired their uh, sovereignty, uh, they acquired this power, was that their army would come in and just demolish with brutal violence anyone who stood in their way. They would come in, if you didn't surrender, they would just take you out, take you down. If there was resistance, man, they would string you up. And you can read account after account of how brutal the Romans were in their oppression of peoples. They would come in and, you know, if, if there was resistance from a town or a city or a village, they'd literally crucify, hang up on trees, people by the hundreds or even thousands there's, there's parts of history that record that they were running out of trees to hang people on, right? And so they're this brutal empire, and they do that to symbolize to everybody, hey, look what happens if you try and resist Rome. And so Israel was a nation that had been conquered by Rome, like everybody else at that time. And they were held under the oppression of Rome. And if you were an Israeli, if you were an Israelite, you understood that these Romans had come in, and you probably had somebody in your family or one of your friends that had been killed or had been abused by the Romans. Or you personally may have, have, had, have experienced that. And so these rom- Romans were just horrible, horrible people that were holding you under oppression. And the only way that the Romans were able to get that power and maintain that power was by having humongous army, having these ginormous armies. And they, they funded these armies by having ginormous taxes, So there's this huge tax, this huge army that's funding all that's going on. And if you were an Israelite, what you had to do was you had to pay tax to help fund the regime that was holding you under oppression, the regime that had killed your relatives, the regime that had dealt so brutally with you. And so I'm hoping you're starting to get a picture in your head of who a tax collector was, because a tax collector was your countryman, a fellow Jew maybe a a relative even of yours, who went to the Romans and said, hey, I want to buy the right to be able to take taxes from my people and give it to you so that you can continue to oppress us. And that's why I want you guys to get your head around this, because literally, I cannot think of a worse type of person. They're a traitor and an extortionist to the highest level. And once you start to get your head around that, you start to understand that the fact that Jesus was interacting with these guys is incredible. As I think of modern day equivalents to this, the closest examples I could, I, I could think in talking this through with a few friends this week was in World War II. There was, uh, there was some ghettos set up in different countries, like in Poland, in Warsaw, And they had inside of these ghettos all the Jews contained, right? And what they'd do is they'd actually set up Jewish police, which were Jews who had turned on the other Jews and would brutally treat all the other Jews. They had informants amongst them. And these guys, their fate ended up being the same as the rest of the Jews. They didn't realize that. They thought they'd, you know, do better than the rest of the Jews. But they were traitors much in the same way. Another modern day example that we could possibly look at would be there are currently estimated to be at least a hundred men and women, well, I'm assuming mostly men, could be wrong on that, that are over fighting with ISIS or groups like ISIS in the Middle East right now, as in fighting for ISIS. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of blows my mind. These are people who grew up around us here in America that are now fighting with the terrorists. Okay, so get your head around those modern day examples and think about that, translate that. That's who Jesus is showing friendship to. That's pretty extreme, right? To recline at somebody's table, I mean, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is there reclining at a table. That was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship in their culture. And there Jesus is in this intimate expression of of friendship with these guys at this table. So We've got the tax collectors. We also have the sinners there present. Let's talk about them for a minute. A sinner was somebody who was considered to be an outcast. Okay. A sinner was not just a tax collector, a prostitute, or someone with questionable morals, although it could have been one of those type of people. But it was somebody who wasn't able to or willing to live up to the religious people's interpretation of Scripture. It was like This is what you need to do to be accepted in our culture and they weren't willing to jump over that bar. It was those type of people. And a modern day equivalent could be, uh, you know, several examples, but it could be somebody that just is completely different from you in their choice of morals, in their choice of lifestyle. might be somebody that you just find it really hard to be around, you just don't like them. Or it may be somebody that you prefer not to see like a homeless person. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, when you're at a traffic light and there's a homeless person there, everybody creeps in that lane because they're trying to get that homeless person out of their peripheral vision. It's interesting. So these are the type of people that Jesus is there hanging out with. And not just hanging out with, He's showing this intimate sign of friendship with them by having a meal with them, a formal dinner. The next group of people present are the disciples Now, here in Mark 2, this is the first time that the disciples, that word disciple is used. It's going to be used a lot through the book of Mark, but the first time we see it here is in Mark 2. And a disciple was simply someone who was a learner or a pupil, somebody who was learning from their teacher, the rabbi. Uh, One of the things that's been said about Jewish culture, that a disciple was one who was covered, had been covered by the dust of their rabbi, of their teacher, The thought was that you walked so closely behind that the dust off their feet would cover you, that you lived, that you emulated the master, the teacher. A disciple was called by the teacher to be their follower, and in some cases this meant abandoning home, family, friendship, work, many things to be a disciple. It also meant that you would stand 100% by the master's, the, the, the rabbi's teaching. So that's who a disciple was. And, and a modern-day equivalent, I hope for us, would be us. As Christians, our hope and our goal is to be Jesus' disciples. You look at Matthew 28. Jesus is talking to his disciples, these same guys. He's talking to them as he's about to leave. He's died and he's risen again and he's about to leave us. Then he says, Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. So we are those disciples. And hopefully we have in our church, in our congregation, generations of disciples, people who have come to faith because we've been faithful in in being able to love people and and point them towards Christ, and then they, in turn, are able to faithfully love and point people to, to Christ, and we have generations of disciples. That's how we sit here in this room today, because of these first disciples, and hopefully that will continue to happen in and through God's church at large, not just Point Community Church. But you've got these disciples there present. And then the last group of people present there are the Pharisees. Now a Pharisee, again, this is the first time they're introduced in the book of Mark. They'll be referenced several times. A Pharisee was someone who was, it could be interpreted, that word Pharisee, as a separatist. A separatist. This is someone who's a legalist. Someone who's rigorous about keeping every ounce of the Old Testament law, the Torah. They had the Old Testament of the Bible, which is a lot of stuff, memorized. They had all these laws that they could heap on top of their, the laws of the Old Testament that actually made up their own laws to keep themselves clean and pure in front of God. They were working their way to God through their purity, or so they, so they thought. One of the notes I saw this week said that they had cultic purity. That's an interesting way of putting it. The modern-day equivalent for a Pharisee is someone who is a religious person who is working their way to earn God's favor by right living. Someone who has this assumption of their own moral goodness, that they can pull their own, themselves up by their own brute bootstraps and earn and win God's approval and favor. And so you've got this tense moment here, right? We've got two verses. That's all we read this morning. Or oh, three verses, sorry, 15, 16, and 17. In these three verses... You've got this melting pot of, of this, these relationships. You've got the tax collectors, the worst of the worst. You've got these sort of in-betweens, the sinners. Then you've got the disciples, these guys who are following Jesus. And then you've got the Pharisees, these hyper-religious people. All there interacting with each other. And, and I think it's good for us to ask the question this morning, why did Jesus choose to interact the way that he did with these tax collectors and sinners? He knew the Pharisees were going to see him. He knew how they were going to react, so why did He allow this to happen? Why is this story even recorded in Scripture? Well, I think our answer is found back in verse 17, and so I want for us to read that again together. Verse 17, let's go back there if you've still got your finger in your Bible. It says this, When Jesus heard this, as in them grumbling about Him eating with tax collectors and sinners, He told them, Those who are well don't need a doctor but the sick do need one i didn't call to come, i didn't come to call the righteous but sinners and there's a truth here in this text that i want to say loud and clear to you guys today is that jesus was pointing to us towards this truth god's kingdom is called to be a hospital for sinners not a social club for saints and that applies to our church as well. Church, our hope is, our prayer is that this church wouldn't be a social club for saints. It would be a hospital for sinners. God says to these religious people in this moment, He says, no, 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 you don't understand why I'm, why I'm here. I'm here to help the sick people. Now, He didn't say, that, say this explicitly, but those people that He was talking to, those Pharisees, were sick themselves. They just didn't realize it, Right? And that's the interesting truth inside of this, is that all four groups, you know, the tax collectors, the sinners, the disciples, and the Pharisees needed a Savior. They needed help. They're all sinners. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that nobody's righteous. Not even one person is righteous. We all as humans have this problem of sin But the sad thing is that only three of those groups were willing to see and admit their need, were willing to come and sit at Jesus' feet, to sit at the table with Jesus. And that fourth group, the Pharisees, were were blinded by their religious behavior, were blinded by their own morality to see their need for Jesus, for the Savior. There's a quote by a guy by a guy named Gershner that I want to show you. It's pretty strong language, but I think it's spot on to what we're talking about today. It says this, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Isn't that true? Sometimes our religious behavior, our religious activity, our own moral goodness is what keeps us from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Cuz think about this story, these 3 verses describe to us beautifully, all the people with issues are at Jesus feet. But the ones who don't think they have an issue are the ones who aren't at Jesus feet. They needed Jesus just as much but they didn't weren't ready and willing to admit that. The Pharisees were simply blinded by their own pride and their hatred And we need to see that today. So my hope and my prayer is that you guys would see that, that we're not called to act or to be like Pharisees. But I think there's more to this text. I think there's more to what we're seeing here in that, you know, I I don't think it's good for us to just focus in on the Pharisees in this story. Let's take a look at Jesus and say, okay, what's Jesus showing us? And I think as we look at Jesus in this moment, we, we have this beautiful picture that is both descriptive and prescriptive for us. I want to explain that a little bit. Jesus is descriptive for us in that in this account, in this story, and the rest of the Bible for that matter, Jesus is pointing us to the amazing love that God has for us. The fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners, that he was a friend of the last, the least, and the lost, is very, very good news to us. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus is there hanging out with the worst of the worst. He's there loving on these guys that are traitors and extortionists. That's pretty cool, right? There's hope for me, there's hope for you, if he's the a God who does that, a holy God who comes from God and comes and hangs out with traitors and extortionists. Listen to Ephesians uh, chapter 3 with me, verse 17 through 19. I think I'll have it on the screen for you. But it says this. This is a verse that describes God's love. I pray that you, he's talking to Christians, being, this is Paul speaking, being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love and to know the Messiah, that's Jesus' love, that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." I don't know if you caught that in this verse, but this verse actually makes me smile every time I read it, because of the way that Paul describes it. He says, I want you to know the love of God, but it's unknowable. I want, to get, I want you to get your head around this love that you can't get your head around. And it's kind of like this interesting use of words, where he's basically saying, I want you to fully understand something that you cannot fully understand, people, and for us today, I just hope that as we look at this story, as we see and understand what a tax collector truly was, that you would see and understand the depth, the amazing and radical depth of God's love. God is a God who can come, uh, overcome any bounds, and there is nothing, let me repeat, there is nothing that you have done or that you could do that can separate you from God's love. That's not just a pie-in-the-sky theory. That's a reality that Jesus was expressing through his actions. And some of you in this room really need to hear that today. You need to hear and know that nothing that you've done can separate you from God's love. Some of you walk here in this room today and you're like, God could love me except for my... I think God could accept me but I really struggle to think that he could forgive me of... And I don't know what that fill-in-the-blank is for you this morning, but I want to tell you that if you believe that, that's a lie. That's a lie from Satan. That is not truth. We are told so clearly that God is love, and we see that through Jesus' actions here in Mark chapter 2. So God's love is, is described to us in this story, but it's also prescribed for us. Let me explain that a little bit. The text is prescriptive in that it shows us, it prescribes for us the way in which we should live. We're told that we should live like Jesus, that we should become more and more like Christ, that we should be changed into His image. And that's really the question we're asking as a church. How do we live like Jesus? And I like using that word "prescribe" because it's almost like a medicine for us, right? It's almost like when we live for ourselves, when we live for our own good and our own glory, Typically, you'll run down that road in your life of living for your own happiness or whatever, you know, your own stuff, and you'll come to find that in the end, it's hollow. That life isn't found there. Life is found in receiving God's love and then giving of that love. And as this prescribes to us the way in which we should live, it's like medicine to our souls. When you start living in the way that God has called you to live, receiving His love and then giving of it, it's like medicine for your soul. It's good for you. I like that the word d- d- um, here tells us that we should love to the depth that, that is described here, to the tax collectors, to the last, the least, and the lost. There's a, there's a little bit of a scripture here that I really enjoy. I'm not going to look it up in my Bible. I've got it on the screen for you. It basically says this. It's 1 John 4, verse 19. And this is a scripture I've used before and I'm sure I'll preach many times to come. But it simply says this, we love because he first loved us. We've got to get things in that order. Just a caution to you guys really quickly, don't think that you can just go and love like Jesus. That's not what I'm I'm saying here this morning. Don't walk out hearing me say, you know, oh, I've got to go and act like Jesus and love all the people who are gross. That's not what I'm saying here this morning. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is receive God's love because when you do that, He's going to open your eyes to see the people around you as people that you can love with the love that you personally have first received. And my hope is, my prayer is that this church would be a church full of people, full of broken, messed up people who have received God's love and are receiving God's love and then are giving God's love. Right? So my encouragement to you is two simple things. Firstly is this. If, if you're not somebody who's received God's love, if you wouldn't say that you're a Christ follower, if you're not sure if you're a Christian yet, I, I'm really grateful that you're here, that you're engaging in this conversation. But I just want to encourage you today to ask God to experience His love. My encouragement to you is that you would Take a moment here in these, we're going to do a couple of songs here in a moment, and my encouragement to you would be that you would just, in the quietness of that moment, just say, hey God, I want to know your love, I want to experience your love. And if you pray that prayer, come and tell one of us, that's something to excel- celebrate and be excited about. You can tell Nick, myself, one of the guys up the front here who will be praying, you can... uh express that to somebody who brought you to church today, but really would encourage you that this is your first port of call today. Each of us in this room need to know and experience God's love, that radical love that knows no bounds. My second thought is, if you are a Christ follower, if you are somebody who has received God's love, my encouragement to you would be that you would soak in His love today. Now, I am going to tell you to go and love people around you, but unless you get that first step, the second step doesn't make sense. You're not a little love factory by yourself, okay? You're going to run out of juice unless you first receive the love of God. And so just as you sit there, as, as we stand and sing, I want you to think about what it is that God has rescued from. Think about the depth of His grace. Think about the amazingness of the c- cross. Think about your story and how God has brought you along. Because as you're filled with that love, I know that that's going to transform and mend your heart. And that's going to help open your eyes as you go out this week to see the tax collectors and the sinners that are around you, to see the last, the least, and the lost around you that need God's love, that you're called to be Jesus in their lives to them. And so really my, my, my request of you you lot is twofold, is that, and myself in this as well, is that we would soak in God's love today. And that we would have open and willing hearts to be the hands and feet, to be the, the mouth of Christ this week in the places that he puts us. That we would love in the way that we've received love. That's my encouragement to you guys here this morning, that we would love the unlovable, that we would love like Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. I'm going to ask the band to come forward.